Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, that's good. Okay. All right, you guys got a little bit of energy this morning. So glad to have you guys here in the house and Facebook Live. We welcome you here at Grace Church Waldorf. Well, today we're starting a new sermon series entitled, In Blank We Trust. Money matters. But the question is, what are we going to fill in that blank? We hope that we will be able to fill in that blank. As you see that the blank there is, in God's blessing, we trust money matters. And I know some of you might be saying, oh boy, the pastor's going to talk about money. Well, whippy. Okay, you're going to be all excited about that. Well, listen, we hope that today, as we start this sermon series and we move forward in the coming weeks, we will help to see that that ultimately that we have to look at this and try to figure out what does it mean about giving? How does it, how does it deal with the heart versus a heart of worship, of intimacy, or is it just about the money? And see, I'm, I'm going to entitle this sermon saying it's not about the money. Now, you guys, it's not about the money, money, money. It's not about the money because the idea is that we're thinking about something else beside the money. It's not the ends, but we hope that we will show you that it's the means to an end. And what we are and who we are in Christ, it, it's what is really going to matter. Now, I was just looking at an article this week entitled, or Five Things That Could Happen If the Church Tithe. It's a rethink article. And don't like to use the word tithe too often and because that's an Old Testament term, but we look today as the New Testament believer, we would believe that giving is cheerful as the scripture has made it clear. Now remember too that I'm the vessel in which God is telling me to speak to you. It's not as though I'm saying, but the Bible that's speaking to us and God who's holding us accountable about the importance of giving. So don't view this or try to take off your lenses and thinking subjectively that Bruno is sharing this, but that God is sharing this through his servant. Amen? Amen. All right. Okay, good. So we understand that clearly from the very beginning, because I want to share some information here on this article, and this is what they found out in just churches all around the nation. Now, this article is from 2016, but what I've noticed from 2018 and 19 articles is that the information hasn't changed much. So here's, here we go. When asking about giving, usually a tithe means a tenth, and we'll talk about that quickly today. But some of the statistics state this. Currently, Christians are giving at a rate of 2.5% per capita of the tithe, 2.5%. So if a tenth is what we hope to reach, if a tenth is what we call the floor, not the ceiling, 2.5 is what the Christian is giving as an average. In the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3%. Currently, I'll say even currently, even of that time to even now four years later, they're saying the statistics still stay the same. 10 to 25% of any congregation gives the full giving or the full tithe. Only 3 to 5% of Americans give regularly to the church. Now, as if we look at this, at this time in 2016, there were about 327 million people living in America. I gather that number has ro risen up or rised. And so what we are looking at now, conservatively, 20% of people back in 2016 were attending church, about one to two times a month. Actually, it's gone down a little bit. It's 1.7. 
Okay, it's 1.7 for all you statisticians. Now, that means that roughly in 2016, 65 million people were attending church in America. And they were saying that the median income for churchgoers was, they were just compiling this information, about $61,000 for a family median income. And he wrote, he wrote this, our napkin math leads us to the total of about $401 billion if all these believers in America would give a tenth. Okay, if they would give a tenth, then that would be the case. So we would have $400 billion. However, if we bring it back to the 2.5%, we're looking at $100 billion. Now, what could we do? If we're at a 100 billion as churches all around the nation, and we could have 400 with 10% giving, what could we do? We could add many outreach ministries. We could obviously fully staff churches to do ministry so that your lead pastor doesn't have to be the youth pastor. And then we could change the world and make an impact for the kingdom because we believe, and I believe in through the scriptures, is that the local church is the entity to which God uses in, in, in distributing the monies to be able to touch on all of what we call global and local. We call global of global ministries, of local ministries. It comes through this entity we call the local church because the corporate people come together and give each one accordingly so that we could do ministry outside of these four walls. And so as we look at that, we understand so much more could be happening. But as we understand and, and, and grab hold of ministry, we have to understand that, you know, I have some money right here in an envelope, and I want you guys to know that it's, I got some money. I feel like I'm let's make a deal, you know, you know, the old show where it's like, hey, guys, I have a TV right here, but behind the green door over there or, or the green room over here with the door, I could have a better deal. Would you choose this one or would you choose the back door over here? But I have all this money in front of me. I've got 10 ones. I've got 10 tens. And then I've got 10 $100 bills, right? And uh, you, my son said, yeah, ain't that much money, Dad. And I said, I understand that, but today it's not that much money. But it's still some money, right? And so, but here's the thing. If you would look at this and say, okay, if God's calling me to give a tenth, then I'll just give him a dollar, right? Just give him a dollar. I get to keep the nine, Right? Get to keep the $9. Not much today. Can't even buy lunch, right? Okay, now you got the 10s now, and you go a little bit further. You might get dinner, right? So you give 10 to the Lord, all right? And then I've got $90, and $90 can't even feed a family of five or six at dinner because after tip, it's a little bit more than that. But the whole idea is that I'm giving 10 to the Lord, a little bit more than a dollar, but I get to 90. Now, if I give God 100, which is a tenth out of 1,000, now I've got $900. Wow, I've got $900. To some of you who are younger, you might think, wow, that's a lot of money. Um, I don't know. I can't even carry a mortgage right now. But the whole idea is that what's the difference between the dollar, the 10, or the 100 if I'm still giving 10%? What's the difference? I'm giving a 10th. God allows me to keep the rest. But isn't it all his anyway? Isn't it all his money and not mine? I mean, why would I even think that any of the others is my money? And so the idea is that we want to understand that money is just paper. Because it's really not about the money. It's deeper than that. 
And as we look at the book of Malachi today, we're going to look at kind of understanding because most would look to this particular passage in chapter 3, 6 through 12, but you can't isolate that passage, that pericope we call the narrative there or just discussion. You have to look at the entire book. So I'm just going to come go through it just, uh, just a short little premise here at the beginning to say that if we have to look at it, God was calling on his people to worship. In the book of Malachi, we understood that he was talking to the priests, he was talking to the nation, he was talking to his remnant, and he was talking about worship, and he was talking about honoring him, he was talking about intimacy and a relationship with him. So let's think about worship for just a second, because we know worship isn't just 15 minutes a week, it's far, far more important than just 15 minutes a week, but look at this. Now, if we were to just say our worship of God involves. What does it involve as believers today? Well, I'll say three areas. I think it believes in our it involves the identity with Christ. It involves who we are in Jesus, that we're from sinner position before Christ to saint, and God did all the work through his son. And even today as we're a saint, although we don't feel like a saint, we're walking progressively with God through sanctification until glorification. So it's our identity and who we are in Christ, whom God has appointed us as his people wherever we go. So that's an act of worship from God to us and us to him. Two is that we have integrity with others. So when we have an identity with God and we submit to him and we love him and we enjoy this relationship and we allow him to work in our lives, then we show integrity to others. So when we're vulnerable and transparent with God, we then become vulnerable and transparent with others. And that's where we do community, discipleship, and ministry. And then we go further in saying our influence upon the world is amazing because even John 13, 34, and 35, they will know we are disciples if we have love for one another. So when we have love for God and we have love for each other with integrity, then we can make an influence to the world around us. So that's an act of worship. But now here in Malachi, the Israelites, the priests, their worship to God involved this inconsistency with God. They didn't find their identity with God because although they were doing the various, uh, various important you know, things that they were doing with the temple and the duties that they had, they were inconsistent with their heart. They were half-hearted. They were complacent. They just kind of did it out of duty, out of routine, more than it was because of intimacy. And then secondly, they became indifferent toward each other. There was indifference towards each other. It was toward God and toward each other. And then they didn't really show integrity because they weren't really open to God with an integrity and a vulnerability and a transparency. So they weren't really doing that. They were hiding themselves. They were committing themselves to God in some manner, but not to the level that God wanted to. And then third, we see that they were irrelevant upon the world. Obviously, they were irrelevant to God, as we see in this particular passage in this book, but also irrelevant to the world around them. So Malachi confronted Israel for six intentional sins against God. It's not the Italian prophet, by the way. That's an, that's an offense to me, Malachi. I don't even know where that came from. But it's Malachi, and Malachi confronted Israel for these intentional sins. And we have to look at this before we get to the passage that we want to t touch on. Number one is this. They're rejecting God's love. See, there was a question, a Q&A, a question and answer method going on. God would accuse them and judge them, and Malachi would be the one to whom he spoke for God. And then they respond with cynicism. 
And they would respond and question, well, what do you mean, Lord? We're doing this. What do you mean, Lord? That and so back and forth throughout the book. In fact, I would encourage you to study this book. This is an amazing book of a challenge for us as people to make sure that we have a heart and passion for God. So they rejected God's love, his unconditional love, his covenant love, his loyalty to us in an unconditional covenant. And so he was talking about it, and they rejected it. And then you have um, number two here is they rejected God's honor. They were dishonoring God with their insincerity. And they called the polluting of offerings to God, offering dead animals that were unclean to God, offering not incense, but they would call a manufactured fire before God. See, what even says in one of the verses that, that they feared the governor. God says, you fear the governor more than you fear me. Because their hearts were complacent. They were comfortable. They were half-hearted. Even in Malachi 1.6, it says this, a son honors his father and a servant uh, his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O oh, priests who despise my name. But you have said, have you, how have we despised your name? See that cynicism. And then Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Malachi chapter 2, verse 2, it says, And now, O priest, this command is for you. Verse 1 into 2. If you will not listen, by the way, understand that listen in the Old Testament, like the word remember, when you see the word remember, he's referring to the covenant. When you see the word listen, it's God saying, listening with the intent to obey. That's the Hebrew mindset. So you're not just listening saying, yeah, 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 honey, I heard you. And then it's one ear and out the other. It's listening with the intent to obey. I know many of you wives will wish that we as husbands would listen more and be intended to either cooperate, uh, work together. And I know some of us don't do a great job. We go into, I always say, our nothing box. So it's the idea that we listen. And he says, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord, of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it upon your heart. So we see we have an issue where there's complacency. Number three, rejecting God's faithfulness. Rejecting God's faithfulness, as we see throughout, what was happening in this passage was the Jewish husbands were leaving their Jewish wives for foreign women. And they were leaving them, but they weren't keeping the sanctity of marriage. And God said, I hate divorce. He said in verse 15, but he, did, but he the one, did, did he not make them one, the two to become one, to, be, to seek a godly offspring? So the purpose of being married unto the Lord for the sanctity of marriage is to create and procreate an offspring, an offspring that would bring honor and glory to God. So where is the glory of God if a man leaves his wife for another type of woman? And so God is saying that your heart, you're rejecting my faithfulness to you. You're rejecting my honor. You're rejecting my love. And then he goes on to say this. He says, you know, it, it's re reversing God's righteousness. And in Malachi 2.17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. You speak like you know God, but you're wearying God with your words. But you say, God is saying to the Israelites, how, and to the priests, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. 
and he delights in them. So you're saying that God delights in evil. And he's saying, going on, he says, or you're asking by asking, where is the God of justice? See, in other words, people were saying, God, where are you? We're doing our part. Where are you, God? See, they were doing their duty, but they were complacent with half-heartedness. And God's like, that's not good enough for me. I want your heart. I want your whole heart. And then he goes on. Then here's the sixth one or fifth one, robbing God's riches. So see, it was inclusive in this whole idea of understanding that God is saying, I'm calling you out and judging you of your intentional sin. And one of those sins is you're robbing me of your riches. You have money and you're not giving it. You're not giving your tithe, which is a tenth. And then lastly, we see that reviling God's grace in chapter 3, 13 through 15. So we're going we're gonna to dive in real quickly into Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. So in the first part of Malachi chapter one, or chapter uh, 3, verse 1, talks about how God was pleased with the Lord's messenger. And it's in light of John the Baptist to come. But God was also giving some information, some truth about the millennial kingdom to come because of their sin, of their intentional sin, God was still calling them to repent. And he was giving them hope. During tough times and trials and difficulties, we need hope. Amen? We need hope. And through it, whenever we see that we might be falling or falling short, that God is giving hope at all times. And he's telling them, he's saying, I am asking you, return to me, or telling you with an imperative, return to me, and I will return to you. And so he's speaking this language of the millennial kingdom. He's speaking this language of a hope. And then he goes on and he says to them, for I, the Lord, do not change. Now, this is a very important attribute of God. It's immutability, meaning God is never going to change. He's, he's a constant, and that he's unchangeable. No one can change him. What I love about that is that God is love. God is truth. God is holy, and he will never change. No one could ever tort and change him, but impassibility is, is one of that, too. And that it's the idea that the attribute is that he's not moved to emotion. He's not moved to our whining or complaining. That God doesn't feel sorry for us. That he's always a constant to his truth. Because he draws us in by saying, my child, my, my daughter, my son, I love you. And I want to bring you in to show you the truth. And so in passivity, that's important too of an attribute that we don't often hear. Because he says, I will not change. And then he goes on to say this, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Meaning, I got your back. So I will never change. I'm not going to change through the storms, through the hurricanes, through the tornadoes, through the earthquakes. So therefore, I got your back. You won't be consumed. I got you. And then he goes on to say this. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues. Meaning, you've been unfaithful and not have kept them. You've been unfaithful, and I'm calling you out. And then he goes, return to me. That's what I love about God. His love, his compassion, his mercy. He will always call for that. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. I know when it's tough and it's difficult and you feel as though you failed, you think that God is done with you, that he doesn't care, that if you're in a marriage right now, you're like, I just can't stay longer in this marriage. I got to get out. Or maybe you have a wayward child and you're saying, man, I just can't put up with my child anymore. Or you're just struggling with any kind of relationship or your job. Know that God is near to you, that he's saying, return to me. If you've fallen away, or that you've done some kind of heinous act or continue to do so, God's saying, return to me. And he's saying to his own people here who are just corrupt, 
he was still saying, return to me. And he makes a promise, and I will return to you. I love that, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? I'm here, Lord. I'm doing my job. What are you expecting from me? I'm going to church. I'm doing whatever I need to do. But God's saying, I still have something against you. Here's the fifth one. He goes, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, Lord? You see the cynicism and the questioning back and forth? Boy, I don't know if we can get away with that. I guess we can. But it's like if your tithes and your contributions. Now, we have to understand that God is saying, I don't want you to turn aside. I want you to return to me. And he's trying to draw them in. He's asking them to repent, but they're still questioning it. And so the word rob means to betray. Really, the idea is to withhold from God. And it means to steal, to rob, which is obvious in the Hebrew, it's saying. So how are they withholding from God? Well, let's talk about something else. Let's think about it. Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis 12, 3. God has promised his people and all the seed, the nation, the people, and a blessing on the land. Now, God has created all things. This is his land, right? The, the produce on it. And even in that time of the, of the Old Testament, many who were farmers would have land and produce, not only to eat and live on, but also to sell so they can sell it and gain more money and be able to make more crops so they can continue to sell and have a business. Just like in any setting, today we have lands, we have farmers all around this nation. And you and I, we work really hard because we go to the supermarket to get the produce. So we get the produce so we can eat well. And we eat well, we can be able to make the food in order to live. And so each of us, we, we contribute by the money in which we have. And so God is saying, you have the produce from my land and you're not giving me a tenth to the temple that takes care of it, so you're robbing from me. And each of us, God, this is his land and everything in it, God has promised to bring the blessing to the land, and we too who are Americans, and especially Christians, that we can honor God and worship him and praise him for the land because you know and I know that even during the time of COVID, there was in question whether the animals, and they had to stop some of the companies from, from working through and producing and, and working out and cutting up the meats that we need in order to have on our table so we can go to the supermarket and eat a good meal or the produce on the land and we were concerned. Well, God was saying to these people that I want to bless your land and all around you, but you're not giving me what's mine. This is God who's saying this. See, we have to understand, what is he asking for? A tenth. There were three tithes in the Old Testament. The first tithe was for the Levites. It's mentioned in Numbers. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy. It's mentioned in Leviticus. There was to be set aside for the Levites and the priests who were considered to do the work that the Lord has appointed them to do to keep the temple. In the ministry thereof. Then the second tithe was to be an offering for those who perform the meetings for worshiping in the, at the sanctuary to bring honor and glory to God to contribute. And then the third tithe was every three years they would give a third tithe, which would help for those who are fatherless, widows, orphan, Levites, those of injustice, those who've been oppressed. Those who were foreigners in the Israel land. So in all of these three tithes, the first, the second, and the third tithe, scholars believe that it was an annual percentage of 23 to 30% giving. Wow. 
And that's why tithing, God's not called us to do that anymore. In the New Testament, he calls us to give cheerfully because it's all his anyway. And so we have to understand why, because if we withhold from God, even Proverbs eleven twenty four, Solomon says this, one gives freely, yet all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers wants. It's quite clear. God has encouraged his people to give because it's really not about the money. It's about a heart. We can't say we're with God if we're withholding from God the money that is already his. That's a Bruno quote. Because here, I wrote it down, it's a Bruno quote. It just came across to me. We cannot be with God if we're withholding from God. We have to be a people. God's calling on all of us. It's considered what God calls a sin when we withhold from him. Because it's not about the money. Because if we are withholding, we're saying it's our money, and it's not. It's God's. Even God says in Leviticus 25-23, he says this to the Israelites. This land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, meaning you're just renting it. This is all mine. I'm the God of this universe. I own this land, not you. But he goes on to say to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, you can't say it's from your own power and strength of your hands that produces wealth, yet you do. For it is not I who, produ- who offers you that. It is God. So all of us to understand that God is reminding us about the giving and the contributions. In verse 9, it goes on to say this, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. These are accusations that God is calling on his people. It's not lessened today in the New Testament. I'll, I'll be honest with you, he's calling all of us. It's a command, it's not an option. When we think it's optional, we get into a capitalistic mindset and a Western mind. I'm an individual. I can do what I want. If you're a Christian, you're bought with a price. You don't do what you want. You are a servant of God, and God tells you what to do, and he tells me what to do, and we honor him with our hearts. Amen? Amen. Okay, so we have to understand that this is all the Lord's. It's all the Lord's, and we are to give. But it's, it's not about the money. Because then he goes on further to say this. He goes, because he likens to, in Malachi, which we'll mention in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 2, is about listening. And I want you to encourage you because he was telling them they weren't listening. And listen to what God is saying to the Israelites. He says, bring the full tithe in the storehouse that there may be food in my house, God says. He's making it very clear. The storehouse was potentially, as scholars believe, were a location on the temple grounds where people would bring a tithe, whether it be their produce, whether it be their animal stock, to provide for the Levites, for those who were serving, so they would have food, so they can serve. Because otherwise, if you withhold, then the Levites can't serve, and they would have to learn how to farm. And that's just a silly thing to try to get a Levite to learn how to farm. So God was providing for his people to serve him, and he was doing it through his people. And so we understand that God is offering not only for the Levites, but this money also, as we talked about the three tithes, were offered to those who were fatherless, those who were landless, those who were widows, those who were poor, those who were orphans, those who were foreigners. You know, I I have a TV up here, and you're wondering, you know, what's it doing up here? Well, think of this TV as, you know, 
Think of it as like a toy. Whatever you guys have, all of you have toys. Women and men, we all have kinds of toys. It could be golfing. It could be any kind of thing that you do, any kind of hobby that you do. Um, I'm only putting this TV to dem- just, to, just to represent something that's new. Actually, this is a TV that's going to go into the foyer. Um, but the TV is just a representation of that. But if that's the toy and you have, and I'll just say that, let's just say sp- just speak in generality here. If someone's making 50000 a year, okay, we know the, the family meaning income is a lot more than that, but just say it's 50000 a year, okay? And then if you would give a tenth, it would be roughly about 5000 a year. And of 5000 divided by 12, you're about 400 a month, give or take, all right? So $400 is to be given unto the Lord. But if you like toys and you want to get a new TV, although TV you can, you know, you can get something a lot less probably even for 400 because you can get it for 300 or something. But for a TV or anything that you would, it would represent that, sometimes we would say, well, Lord, you know, um, I'm willing to give, but, you know, Lord, um, I got this toy I've been praying about, and I really think there's an option now, and I got some extra money coming, and I really want to just pay for it right now, and here we go. But, Lord, I'll give you a portion. I'll give you a portion. I'll give you 100 and then some of you might say, well, you know, I'm just going to give 100 because I need to hold some money for my bills. And if I can hold my monies for my bills, then God at least knows I got 100 That's enough, right? See, the question is, which portion should we be given according to the scripture? See, I want to tell you something. I don't believe God's called us. He doesn't want us to give a portion, just like $100 of our resources, nor does he want to say, well, I'm going to pay for the TV, so I'll just give you my leftover portion. But rather, what God is saying is this. Here's your $400. You make $50,000, $400 a month, whatever, once a month, every week. I'm going to give 100 a week. I'm going to give this. Why? Because it's the Lord's. I walk away. I give it to him. I don't think anything other than that. I give it to the Lord. That's obedience. That's worship. That isn't money. This is just the means to an end. It's intimacy with God. It's when God places on your heart to give. And see, that's what it's called to even give. And I'll tell you something. If you want to start somewhere, I want to challenge you 10%. Why? Because when you give it, you'll see blessing upon blessing. Not blessing like personal gain. Blessing where God wants to do an amazing work in his people so that we can do more for the glory of God. This is about obedience. This is about blessing. This is God is calling out on his people because they were disobeying and he wanted to place cursing on them because they weren't willing to trust him. See, that's why I believe that really through this passage, just looking at verses 10 through 12, it's about obedience. It's not only about the money. So when we look at it, so we, when we're obedient to God, God promises. What does he promise to do? Well, He's promising to pour out his unlimited resources from heaven. God is willing to say, I am willing to do that. Now here, in verse verse 10 again, and I'm just going to read verse 10b. I call it b, the second. He says, and thereby put me to the test. Now God never called on man to test him. He's always testing man or his people. But in this case, he's saying, test me. He's saying, examine me. That's what Hebrew word means. And what he's saying is that by examining me, and and actually the word means like when you put a metal through heat to see if it's true metal or the, the trueness and the pureness of that metal. And it's saying, test me, examine me, and see if I will not be faithful. 
Because God, who owns the land, has unlimited resources. And he goes on to say this. He says, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you your blessing until there is no, no more need, meaning I'll satisfy you. You might think there's satisfaction, but I'll satisfy you. Pour, pour, the word pouring down, or that word pour means this. It's actually in the hifel in the Hebrew, which is in a perfect tense, which means that God has promised and it will come. It will come. It will happen. Meaning all you have to do is just give your money and not worry. You give and God will take care of you. Why? Because you're honoring him, obeying him. It's an act of worship. When you're withholding, any one of us who withholds, what we're doing is we're robbing from God. And God sees it. Ananias, Sapphira, Acts 5. He sees it. The Holy Spirit saw it. They were carried out to their death. See, God is serious about money. In fact, Jesus spoke about no other subject more than money in the New Testament. Check it. Because it's a heart issue. It's worship. It's intimacy. It's what we're called to do. Let me share a couple stories here with you because God has given us quite a few stories. (laughs) I never understood over the years, but now looking back, I say, wow. Joy and I were in 2008, we're in New Jersey, a church plant, trying to help a church restart. It had one year. When I went there, Joy and I, we had to rent a home. We came from Dallas. It was about the 1,600-square-foot home. We didn't have a whole lot of furniture, but when we went to New Jersey, we rented a home, and we had not much on the the furniture. In fact, if I recall, we didn't have any dining room furniture. Uh, We barely had a couch. We had some couches, but they were kind of wearing out a little bit. We had a kitchen table. We brought it all together, and we had some beds, and that was the most important thing for me. And so we rented, but what was happening was we had two mortgages. We had the mortgage from Dallas and the mortgage for the rent in New Jersey. It was about $3,000 a month. And I wasn't making a lot of money as a church planter, enough to support my family. My wife wasn't working. But I want to tell you something. We kept on giving. We just kept on giving. Now, God has called on my wife and I to give cheerfully, and we believed him for it. And as we did and we got through it, through those, that year and a half or two years, this, the sponsoring church hired us. And when they did, we had six months later had to buy a house in Pennsylvania. We just got into the house. We needed assistance. But we kept on giving. We just kept on giving. And we had assistance to get the house, and we just squeezed in, but we had no furniture. We barely had furniture. It was, I felt so bad for my wife. It was embarrassing to be able to have people come to our house because there wasn't a whole lot of furniture, but we didn't care. We knew God was calling us to something. As long as I had a bed, that's all I was worried about. But altogether, we didn't really have it. We didn't have dining room furniture. We didn't have living room furniture. We had a family room furniture, and we were just trying to get by. Our refrigerator didn't look that good. And we were concerned, but we said, Lord, we give, but we just kept on giving. We just kept on giving. We didn't stop giving. And when we walked into the house and when the the church knew that we were there, my front landscape looked horrible, but I didn't have the money to do it. We were able to paint upstairs. We didn't have enough enough money to paint for downstairs, but we just kept on giving. But we just kept on giving. And then we saw that what happened was we didn't have the refrigerator, and two families heard about it, and they bought a refrigerator for us, $1,100. We looked it up, brand-new refrigerator, and we were crying. We were amazed by what because we didn't have the money. We just kept on giving. We just kept on giving. And then we didn't have a microwave, and my wife really wanted a microwave. 25 people in the church put in $20 each, and they brought a box to our home, and they surprised us, and there was a microwave oven there, and we just kept on giving. 
And then another person said, hey, I've got some dining room furniture that we want to give to you, which is in our home right now in Maryland. And we were just amazed. And then other people and family said, we got some couches, and we got couches from my mom and all that. And we just kept on giving. And then downstairs, someone said, Bruno, are you going to paint your downstairs? I said, I don't have the money right now. Are you going to do your landscape? No, I don't have the money right now. I'm just going to keep on giving. I'm going to keep on giving. And then about a year later, a, a community group from our church surprised us, told Joya, brought me to tears. We're driving home from a vacation of which our, our friends took us to and paid for it at Outer Banks. And by the way, that friend, too, bought the carpet upstairs, too, $2,300, as we kept on giving. We kept on giving. And then I get home, and what happens? My landscape is all beautiful. Front, front little porch area has a beautiful little set of chairs and a table. Walked in, whole downstairs is painted. They decorated us, and we just kept on giving, kept on giving. See, God, what he was saying is that you honor me, son, I will honor you. It is our passion that we will not look for toys in our lives because it's just a stupid house. But there's no eternal value because when I die, it's gone. But when I give, God is honored. And I'm just telling you this from personal testimony why I'm so passionate about this. is because we have to keep on giving and trust God. It's so important because God promises that he'll protect us from harm. You know, when you keep on giving and you know that you need your air conditioner and your heater to keep on working and you need your, your washer machine and your dryer to keep on working, God extended us for years and years because we kept on giving. And he provided those things as well. And although we were in a lot of debt, God just said, keep on giving, keep on giving. It was teaching me that no matter the storm, no matter the difficulty, God has called me to worship keep on giving. And now he promises it to these people here in Israel saying, I will protect you. I will protect you. Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, I will rebuke. I will command the devourer, the, the locust, the worms, the devourer, the one who eats for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear because, you know, every good Italian needs a glass of wine, so you need the grapes to keep on growing. And so it's all this, the vine and, and all of that for their produce. And you just keep on giving. And God said, I will protect you because that is my unconditional love to you. Just obey me. Just keep on giving. And the third thing he says, provide a harvest of blessings. This is what God will do when we are obedient to God. God promises to provide a harvest of blessings. Look what it says even in verse 12. It says, then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The word delight is pleasure. The word delight is desire and want. Meaning God desires for you and I to be a pleasure on the land. Meaning because he promised that to us. He promised us a people, a nation, and a land. And he promised to bless us if we obey him. We don't want his cursings. We don't want to disobey him. We want to obey him. He even said in chapter 1, verse 4, he says to the Edomites, he says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country. In other words, the land of evil. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He's not happy with those who disobey him. He's not happy with those 
who he, he doesn't find pleasure when people disobey. But he calls on us to repent. He calls on us with compassion. He calls on us and saying, come to me, my child. I love you. Repent. I Meaning there's an offering. There's a hope. Even in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, Oh, that there were among you, you who shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. I love what a commentary says this. It says, the issue in Malachi 3, 7 through 12 is not tithing, but apostasy. Judah is charged here with abandoning the God who had chosen and blessed them and turning away from the statues he had given them to test their loyalty and to mark the path of life he would bless. By retaining for themselves the tithes and the offerings they owed to God, the people showed their idolatrous hearts in placing themselves before God. And they showed their callous hearts in leaving the Levites and landless poor to fend for themselves. See, it's not about the money. It's really not about the money. It's about the heart. God's calling us to worship. God's calling us to intimacy. When you give, it's a means to an end. It's just a, dis it's just a display of your heart. And when we give, we give our hearts to God. I just want to let you know, I think God doesn't want a portion. He doesn't want a leftover portion. He wants the first. And by doing and giving the first, I think the first one we should be giving and the best one is when we give to God our lives. This is just a means to an end. So today I want to encourage you does money matter? Yes, it does. Is it about the money? Not really. It's about our hearts. Does God use money for a means to an end? Yes. What does he use it ultimately to bring honor and glory to himself? We're just servants of the Most High God, and we're called to give. I want to encourage you. I am encouraged by what I see. I look at what's going on here at church. I see who gives. I don't know how much you give, and I'm not interested. But I see who gives, and it tells me that the people in our church, for the most part, are giving. I don't know how much you give, but I want to challenge you to give the 10%. And for those who may not be given, I want to challenge you to test God. He's faithful. He'll come through. Joy and I have been through a lot. I, can't, I, would, I would be embarrassed to tell you how much debt we were in, but we never stopped giving. I don't even venture you're, you're in as much debt as we were back then, but we kept on giving. I want to encourage you today, keep on giving. Because in God's blessing we trust. Money does matter. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today that your people here at Grace Church and abroad, even in the universal church, that we would not withhold from you that we would not think that you couldn't pour out your blessings from heaven. You are an unlimited resource. You own the land, the cattle on a thousand hills. Lord, you are God. You are Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai. Nothing ever crosses your way without you knowing it. You are almighty God. And I pray that you would convict your people, us, all of us, Lord. Because to some of us or to, to many of us, we're giving. Lord, encourage us to give more. I've asked you that, Lord. Would you put on our hearts, my wife's heart and my heart, do you want us to give more? Because, Lord, it's not about the money. 
We know that. It's about our hearts. And I want to be obedient, and I pray that we as together as a church will be obedient to you. God, challenge us to give the tenth at least to start as the floor. And challenge us to give cheerfully unto you. So we could do more ministry. So we can see ourselves reaching more people for your kingdom's sake. God, be glorified. God, be lifted up. God, be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys.